the reading is from Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20, which can be found on your order of service. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right, and the other at your left, in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, and it's very good to see you. Thank you very much for coming in what is no doubt a very busy time for you. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God. We pray that you would indeed speak now as we open your word and look at our world and consider how the two might meet and speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the events of the last weeks have caught everybody by surprise, I suspect uh, all of us in this room, and uh, it's been quite a whirlwind. As ever, uh, Matt's Daily Telegraph cartoons have nailed it. I don't know whether you saw Saturdays. Absolutely genius. It's a couple of students cycling, uh, chatting en route to a lecture. One of them pushes her bike. One says, I'm studying politics. The course covers the period from 8 a.m. on Thursday to Friday lunchtime. But despite it all, I want to suggest that we should not be surprised. Yes, maybe about individual events and the way different votes and uh, uh, decisions go, but as a general trend, I do not think we should be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised by the deepening prevalence of cynicism. We shouldn't be surprised by a popular distrust of politicians. We shouldn't be surprised by the ease with which people seem to be mobilised despite accounts of their apparent apathy. We shouldn't be surprised. And perhaps it's, it's true to say, and several people have commented on this, that actually the events of the recent, uh, most recent days seem to be driven by the desire to give a massive poke in the eye to the establishment, to the status quo, whatever the nuances of any arguments, pro or con. And I would suggest that this is the outworking of something far bigger and far older than 
any of us in this room can imagine. We would, uh, could call this a crisis of suspicion. A deep distrust of authorities, of powers, of institutions that have been our national bedrock for generations. This is part of something far bigger than any of us. Now I have absolutely no doubt that many who work in this building are motivated by high ideals of public service and who temper their natural ambitions with those ideals. I I have no doubt about that. But let's never be naive about the realities of power as the ancients constantly reminded. And indeed, in our reading that you have on the sheet, Jesus himself speaks of a style of power radically different from the prevailing culture of his day and, I would suggest, radically different from today's culture. It's not a culture of self-service and self-interest, but of self-sacrifice and self-denial. He is, after all, the radical root of all our talk of servant leadership, even though the business community has gotten onto this only in the last 40 or 50 years. He was saying this stuff two millennia ago. But I do honestly believe that this Galilean carpenter from two millennia ago is the key to escaping the kind of pit that we found ourselves in but not in ways many might assume. And that is the point of this little series of three short talks. And I do honestly think there is hope, even in the midst of this turmoil that we're in. And what Jesus says in Matthew 20, I think, is the key to understanding this. Uh, I want to focus mainly on that next week, but uh, highlight some things now uh, to give a broader picture of what we're talking about Because this comes just after Jesus has predicted his death and uh, his resurrection is mentioned, but in a sense, it's the turmoil and suffering that he faces that clouds everything. And uh, just after he's done that, you know, for the second and third time, he does it multiple times, in fact, uh, one of the disciples' uh, mothers comes along to him with her children, her sons, and basically wants to get in there first to bag the best seats for her sons. There is a sort of naked ambition there, a desire for the privileges and opportunities of power. And it seems that the other disciples are furious about it, not so much because of the desire, but because she got there first. Well, if those in public life are to find a way to combat this crisis, we must understand its roots. And of course, it's complex, perhaps 125 years in the making, thereabouts. And we've not seen the full extent of it, nothing like. But it is a perfect storm. And as with Jesus' disciples, I think it boils down to an ugly suspicion that is prevalent. An ugly suspicion that the pursuit of power is for the purposes of self-aggrandizement alone. That's no new problem, of course. That's as old as the hills. But it has a contemporary twist, I would suggest, first diagnosed by the notorious but brilliant Friedrich Nietzsche, who is the 20th century's great prophet, the ultimate master of suspicion. So he declared categorically that nothing should ever be taken at face value. Nothing. Every statement, every act... 
Every thought, even, should be scrutinised in depth, not for what it means, but for what it hides. What does it hide? What's really going on? So he wrote this in his book, Beyond Good and Evil, 1886. He declared, every philosophy also conceals a philosophy. Every opinion is also a hiding place. Every word is also a mask. He thus sowed the seeds for our cultural suspicion right there. Out of this came many. For example, the French philosophers who gave up Marxism after the Second World War or during because of what they'd seen Stalin get up to in the name of their ideology. But but they didn't suddenly embrace capitalism. Far from it. Uh, Nor did they embrace the old dogmas of religion. No, that, that was all done and dusted. Instead, they forged a brave new world of what is called the postmodern, which gleefully proclaims liberation from political ideologies, from all ideologies, from the grand stories that explain the world. We don't need them. Let's relish our own personal story. Because, you see, truth claims are never what they seem. They're not actually a description of reality. Not really. They're they're about power. Truth claims are really power claims. The one making the claim basically is just trying to get one over you. So be careful. Don't be caught. Every word is a mask. And after all, who knows what's really true anyway? Think about it. This is the foundation, for instance, for all investigative journalism. Uh, It's the the, the foundation for obsessive propagation of conspiracy theories. Just Google conspiracy theories and you've got, well, you've got a job for life. This leads to the exercise of revisionism, especially for our historical heroes and icons. Everything must be re-evaluated with what uh, the writer Joyce Carol Oates described as pathography. In other words, we must excavate to get to the real motivations, the dark secrets that all are trying to hide. Forget the spin, forget the victor's propaganda. Let's find what really happened. Who gets silenced? Who gets marginalised? Who gets oppressed? Parse the details, read between the lines. Every word is a mask. But then, what else should we expect? after the experience of brokenness and horror. Especially after the horrors of the 20th century, we've just been commemorating the Battle of the Somme. Now, however unfair the description, and people are trying to sort of rectify reputations and so on, but there was this prevailing sense of lions being led by donkeys, as they said. Millions slaughtered because of certain doctrines of war. The elders and betters had been trusted, or perhaps tolerated, but the time had come for change. And when someone has trusted, and then when that trust is betrayed, they're always going to be reluctant to trust again. Once bitten, twice shy. Of course. How could it not? That's just self-preservation. It's just keeping yourself safe. So, believe it or not, the patron saint of this Nietzschean realism is none other than Jim Hacker, MP. 
He's uh, been asked by his wife, Annie, in one scene, uh, if he believes the rumours that the then Prime Minister has stashed one million pounds worth of South African diamonds in a safe in number 10. And Hacker's response is, no. But then you see, it's never been officially denied. First rule in politics, never believe anything until it's officially denied. There's Nietzsche all over. It's all a matter of not getting conned. After all, who wants to be gullible? But here's the problem. This understandable reaction to betrayal and broken trust has degenerated into a posture, a bullish posture, against power at any point. All power. Whoever holds it. With perhaps one exception. We're happy if the people in power are exactly like me. If my sort. We can trust them, of course. They will look after their own, uh, our own. That's why we want our guys, my people, holding the reins of power. But of course, that is just tribalism. And anyone who does not protect the interests of the tribe is a traitor to the tribe. And in extremis, it leads to the horror that befell dear Joe Cox. Unbelievably, still just a few days ago. Of course, political power is as neutral as electrical power. It can be used for good or ill, creation and destruction. But this climate of suspicion for historical, cultural, philosophical, sociological reasons, it's a perfect storm, derives, I think, largely from one thing, from the abuse of power. Or at least the perception of the abuse of power. That's the unfair thing. People assume to be abusing it if they have power, because that's what people do. Isn't that what history teaches us? You see, the culture of suspicion presumes guilt without even the vaguest possibility of innocence. Rather like these disciples wanting the best seats at the cabinet table. Even though he's just been predicting his death. They don't really understand what his kingdom is. He asks them, can you drink the same cup? Do you know what you're asking for? Do you really understand what's entailed? He says, some people will have those seats, but it's not my decision. It, it, it's basically, it, it's going to happen, yes, but do you know what you're asking for? More to the point, do you really understand what it means to wield power like God does? That's what it gets down to. So when we see, as a culture, people with power who presume that it is self-interest, not altruism. In fact, we're told by some scientists even that altruism is an impossibility. There's no such thing. Skullduggery is the norm. So, whether it's issues to do with Brussels' sway over the UK, Westminster's sway over Edinburgh, the Chilcot report in the Iraq war, MPs' expenses, the power of lobbyists, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
Now, please note, I'm not prejudicing any of those issues. I'm merely pointing to the fact that actually public perception is fairly uniform on all these things, however unfairly. And they're rarely countered in public life, certainly in the public square and the media. Rarely countered. People in power have abused it. It's a fact. That's why we have checks and balances, committees and all the rest. And it's not naive to doubt the motives of the powerful, at least some of the time, whatever the colour on the political spectrum, but all the time? Surely that is not fair. I certainly believe it is not fair. And yet the worrying thing is it doesn't stop here. It goes far beyond politics. So as a culture, we struggle to trust bankers because they fiddle libel. We struggle to trust police officers because they target ethnic minorities. We struggle to trust TV journalists because they manipulate footage. Priests because they sexually abuse our children. Scientists because they fix their findings. I mean, there aren't, seriously, aren't many professions left to give up on. Perhaps, I don't know, I can only think of firefighters. They're pretty much still the heroes of the hours. We could see after 9-11 and so on. Great. So far, so bad. I fear you're probably feeling utterly doom-laden, as if what was going on outside uh, didn't do that enough. I've really lowered the tone and the mood. I do apologise. I do think this is the crisis that we're in, but I articulate it like this for the simple reason I think there is something we can do about it. Few people actually want to abuse power. But how do we convince others that that is the case? This is where Jesus' words are so timely and challenging. For central to his statements in these verses, you can see it just over the page at the beginning of verse 26. After talking about how Gentiles lorded over people, in other words, he's talking about the Roman occupation of Judea. An enemy occupation. Control and command. Exploit and oppress. They knew full well what Jesus was talking about. It's not just any Gentile, it's the Roman Gentiles. How they lord it over you. Take the best houses, make the biggest profits. What does Jesus say? Verse 26. Four crucial, life-changing words. Not so with you. Not so with you. And next week, I want to think about what that radical alternative looks like. What does he mean, not so with you? And it's my contention that this alternative road for wielding power is a road that provides the only escape route from the culture of suspicion. The only one. I can, I've been racking my brains for the last few years trying to figure out how on earth we deal with this. This is the only thing I've come up with. Not so with you. Well, I hope you will be able to come back to find out what that looks like. Let me pray as I close. Heavenly Father, we praise you for what you have shown us of the Lord Jesus, that he understands this world better than we ever could, that he understands the compromises, the challenges, the grey areas, the difficulties. He understands and acted at the ultimate cost. We pray that you might help us to follow in his footsteps, that we might 
not do as the Gentiles do, but as he did and does. In Jesus' name we pray.